Welcome to Center Stage with international opera star Pamela Kuhn. And now, here is your host, Pamela Kuhn. Good morning, everyone, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. I recently attended the winner's concert for the prestigious Gerda Listener Foundation Vocal Competition in New York City. This is one of many foundations that supports young emerging operatic talent with cash awards for the investment in their art. It is always followed by a gala dinner directly afterwards, and I was happy to attend with my pal, Tony Minoli. I have attended many functions like this in and around the vocal world, and often there has been a charming man introducing the festivities as a master of ceremonies who leads the proceedings in what I would term the ultimate paradox in this situation. He does it with an easygoing but determined focus. I had seen the same Clark Kent lookalike presenting at several major music functions, including the Opera News Awards, and I found myself now falling into the rhythm of his soft-edged speech pattern and realized that was the center of his charm. We were all being lulled into a sort of reverie of discovery with a voice like honey and a rhythm that was something of a barcarolle. I was suddenly so drawn to this master of ceremonies that I carefully read his bio with an excited interest that I can only liken to discovering that there is a new BMW concept car out there and it has my name on it. And I found the gold I was searching for in the last serendipitous sentence. He is originally from Tillamook, Oregon. And as most of you know, I am a champion of the West Coast by birth and by admiration of all that it has to offer. And one thing that my guest today, our Master of Ceremonies, writer Brian Kello and I have in common, is that we both treasure a sense of ownership to the lovely state of Oregon, a place where I feel that a Tolkien-style lore hides within the lush outdoors, in the guise of clarity and a unique naivete. Always knowing that he wanted to become a writer, Brian Kello lifted himself up after his education at Oregon State University to take on the challenge of working in New York City. The challenge was accepted, and he has succeeded with five books now published, all to rich critical acclaim. These include a wide spectrum of knowledge from film, theatrical icons to music, including Pauline Kael, A Life in the Dark, the first biography of the brilliant film critic. Can I Go Now? The Life of Sue Mengers, Hollywood's First Super Agent. Can't Help Singing? The Life of Eileen Farrell, the Feisty American Soprano. The Bennets, an Acting Family. On the Royal Family of Actors and Ethel Merman, a Life, covering one of the greatest voices and personalities in all of show business. Welcome, Brian Kello. Thank you very much, Pamela. <laughs> it's such a joy to have you here. We come from opposite ends of Oregon. <laughs> right. I from the east, you from the west, right. but let's come together in the middle. Yeah, absolutely. Around John absolutely. Day, Meet the you Dalles. and John Day. <laughs> right, exactly. As long as it's well, on the Columbia River, I don't mind. Well, I'm so glad that I, I put my birthplace in my program bio because Me too. this happens every once in a while. Somebody will come up afterward and say, I just found out that you're from Oregon and I'm from Oregon and, you know, I'd love to talk about it. So I think that Oregonians do have a, a real do. connection. We do. There's, there's no question about it. And I think it's interesting. It's important enough for you to do that, to put it in the bio. Yeah. You well, know? it's important to me. I loved growing up there. I'm very proud that I grew up there. Uh, when I met 
you know, friends of mine in New York, where I've lived for 34 years, uh, who came from some not so nice parts of the country, I feel even luckier. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <You know>? Exactly. <laughs> Well, among the many things that we seem to share, the artistic gift born into a small-town environment is a definite link. Mm-hmm. Um, can you give us an idea of what it was like to grow up in Tillamook County, Oregon, and what affected you most there, there with your artistic fire? I mean, what, what really ignited it? Well, you know, it was a very isolated place. There's no question mm-hmm. about it. It's 90 minutes from Portland <clears throat> and uh, about... 70 minutes from Salem, the state capital, I guess. It's not mm-hmm. really close to much of anything except the Pacific Ocean. But, um, but you know, when I think about it, there was, a lot of, there was a lot of music there when I was growing up. A really? great deal. Yeah. Everybody, you know, well, not everyone, but a lot of people took music lessons, whether it was piano or voice or guitar or clarinet or whatever it was. And I think it had something to do with the fact that it was a very uh, predominantly Catholic community. There were a lot of Swiss Catholics in really? this area. Yeah. And and at that point, Sacred Heart Convent and the and the Catholic schools were very strong, had a big uh, big enrollment. And I did not go to Catholic school, but I took my music lessons there. Excellent. And I was a lay pupil, and I took my piano lessons there. And uh, yeah, so I think I felt like there was kind of always a lot of that going on around. Now, the problem was if you were a movie fan, which I was <laughs> – that was a little tougher mm-hmm. because we had a local uh, movie theater, the Coliseum, right on Main Street in Tillamook, and it took movies forever mm-hmm. to get there. And I tell this to kids now, and they don't have any idea what I'm talking about. Of course about. they don't. It would take sometimes years for a, a first run, you know, after the first run, for a, a big film to, to reach our little town. I remember very clearly I saw Funny Girl on August 6th, 1970. And I remember that date because it's the night my grandfather died. And uh, I thought, when I was working on the Pauline Kael book, I thought, I'm going to look up when the movie was first released. It was released in September of 1968. (laughs) So it took two years for Barbara Streisand to to get to Tillamook. Yeah, yeah, to get right. But it did. She had many admirers waiting for her. That that was one of the problems I had, too, in that we had to drive 30 miles to find any movie theater, which was a drive-in, which was seasonal. Yeah. So only. really, I I grew up on on a whole diet of of television and the f- films that were on television. We had three television channels. Yeah. And um, I don't know if you remember that beautiful John Landis production called Dream On with Brian Ben Ben. Oh yeah. A few years yeah, ago. Yeah. Yeah. Where he he lived in like television segments. Right. And I always right. felt that that's how I grew up too because yeah. we just clung to television as a means of getting Completely. you know out out there. Completely. So to speak. I was just last night. I had dinner with my friend Lauren Flanagan, uh, the soprano mm-hmm. uh, from New York City Opera, and the Met. And she was saying, <clears throat> you know, back then, when we were growing up, there was something major on television and, and undiscovered every night, That's practically. True. That's you could true. find these people, these great musicians, these mm-hmm. great actors, uh, every single night. You know, and I'm afraid that's not the case anymore, and, even though we have so many more channels. And it's so right, because <laughs> yeah. I remember live television, of course. I saw first heard and saw Gunda Leonovitz do a scene from Beethoven's Fidelio on mm. the Ed Sullivan Show. Wow. And I thought I had died and gone to heaven. Oh, yeah. And yeah. I was very young. 
Yeah. It, but still, the impact is so great. I mean, oh, yeah. you know, sure. there's something to be sure. said for television, folks. Right. Right. Oh, my gosh. When did you know you wanted to become a writer? Always. Always. I never wanted to be anything else. I had no. Well, in the very beginning, they thought I was going to be a visual artist. And because I, I had a fair amount of, of drawing talent, not painting particularly, mm-hmm. just mm-hmm. drawing. And so my parents got me some private lessons. And it was, I was just thinking about this the other day. Uh, I didn't stick with it for very long because I didn't have the patience for it. I could not figure out why my drawing of the tree in the book did not exactly look like the tree in the book. Bo- the, the tree in the book, and I got very, very fed up with it and frustrated. I just thought, well, I'm not any good. I'm not going to bother with this. But you know, that was fine mm-hmm. because really, what I really had my heart set on was being a writer. A writer. Yeah, yeah. And here now, you've come to writing the great biography, the only existing biography, of the wonderful film critic Pauline Kael. Mm-hmm. The first one. I think it's, they told me, I didn't even think about it so much, I guess, but when the reviews came out in 2011, a lot of the critics said it is the first biography of a film critic ever. Really? Well, if you think about it, you, it isn't the first thing that would come to mind for a biography because True. what do film critics do? They sit in a darkened room and watch movies mm-hmm. mostly mm-hmm. and then write about them. Uh, however, I, I thought there was another way to do it, to sort of talk about the, the context mm-hmm. of the changing times and, and the changing movie times and how she affected them, which she most definitely did. And she affected filmmakers. Right. And she had relationships with so many of these filmmakers, you know, personal friendships. From what I understand, she felt it was her duty to prod them to make them better. Yes. Yeah. There's a wonderful story in the book. Um, She was having kind of a drunken dinner one night with Sidney Lumet in the 1960s. And the, the whole question of what a critic's role is came up. And she slammed her hand down on the table and said my role is to show him which direction to go pointing at Lumet, Lumet. and she believed <laughs> that she really did uh, a lot of her colleagues kind of rolled their eyes into the back of their heads I think when I interviewed them because they thought she had overstated that but but she was such a great writer and such a great spirit mm-hmm. and such a passionate believer in the possibility of movies that I think it's kind of hard to argue with her it's interesting because she grew up in a family where the standards are very high, even though they started out in Petaluma, California, yeah. as chicken farmers, which I find so extraordinary. Um, yeah. But yet her mother really had was quite erudite and, and wanted the mm-hmm. best for her daughters. Yeah, yeah. The mother had come from a little bit of a background in the old country. And uh, they, they had come from, from Poland and, and Russia in the, the early part of the century. And... Uh, uh, Immigrated to New York and really were left with practically nothing and then found out about this opportunity for chicken, Jewish chicken ranchers in (laughs) in California, which I guess sounded a lot better than the streets of the Lower East Side of Manhattan. I guess. And and they out they went and they did rather well until they lost everything in the crash. Yeah. 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 But then they seemed to do okay in San Francisco after that. So her whole life was, like, based in the West Coast initially. Right. And that's one thing that really intrigued me about her story as well. Um, Pauline had a a bit of a a chip on her – not a chip on her shoulder. That's not the right term. But she she was a little bit um, funny about the whole streamlined 
East Coast path to success mm-hmm. where you go to the right prep school, you go to the right Ivy League college, and then mm-hmm. you're, you're immediately launched into a wonderful job through your connections. She was very suspicious of that. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I have to say, I am too. Yeah. I, I am too as I a Westerner. S- there, there is a link there, isn't there? Yeah. And I, I did find that I didn't even really understand that until I moved uh, from Oregon to New York in 1982. And I saw that that was the time-honored path, you know. But mm-hmm. I don't know. I, 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 I had my own path, and that worked out fine. <laughs> it sure did. It sure did. You, you start your book about her talking about a, a talk she gave at Oregon State University. Yeah. Were you in the audience? Of course. <laughs> yeah, it was it was incredible. And was you met really her incredible. then? I did meet her very briefly then. And she was very, very nice to me. She'd given this inc- fantastic lecture. And I was riveted to every word of it because I'd been reading her for years and years in the, in the New Yorker. <clears throat> and then there was a question and answer session. And a couple of people, including one member of the English department at Oregon State University, made the mistake of sort of challenging her on a couple of her ideas and opinions. Oh, really? And, um, and it, they were shot down very quickly. I mean, she, she was like a sharp knife. Wow. But with humor, too. You know, mm-hmm. I mean, it wasn't like. Oh yeah, she was clever. Oh yeah, she was wicked clever. But she just—it made me like her even more the way she handled herself. I love it. And then I met her afterward, and she was terribly, terribly nice to me. I remember uh, that. And she had fought with everybody, including the editor yeah. at the New Yorker, where she worked. Um, William Sean for so many, so many years. Yep. That was a very, very, very contentious relationship. Didn't she feel he was rather parochial or a little mm-hmm. bit too conservative? Well, she thought he was a prude. She thought he was a prude. Uh, William Sean had a lot of phobias and a lot of really intense dislikes. He was famous for uh, always being cold. Mm-hmm. So even in the dead of summer, a lot of people would see him wrapped up in scarves and coats and everything when he was going out and gloves. <laughs> and um, uh, But he was very, very prudish about language, <clears throat> any off-color language or any any sexual remark. And of course, Pauline loved to pepper her copy with this kind of thing. And there, there were a lot of back and forth fights. And some one of the other editors, Bill Whitworth, sent me a galley that he had saved in which Pauline and William Sean are going back and forth about a movie review. <laughs> and he's objecting to her language. It's very funny. Lovely. Yeah, it's great. And how long did she work at The New Yorker? She started in 1968. And she had a uh, a break in 1979 when she went out to Hollywood to try to become a producer mm-hmm. with Warren Beatty. And that did not work out at all. And uh, then the following year she came back and then she stayed until 1991. Now, why didn't it work out? Did, could she not deal with Hollywood or Hollywood couldn't deal with her? Or? I think she was naive in thinking that she would have a great impact on what kind of films were made. And when she got there and she saw the incredible slog that it is, sitting in those production meetings and having to deal with a whole multiplicity of opinions and a lot of yes people, Mm -hmm. and she saw the really slow, slow process uh, of, of getting a movie made, she just knew it wasn't for her. 
Wow. And she was not a politician either. Oh, I, mean, I can She told some that. of these people in meetings that they were stupid and <laughs> didn't know what they were talking about. She was so. probably right. I oh, mean, I'm sure in, she in, was in right. In her world, sure you know, on, right. on paper it was okay, but... Uh... Yeah, she, she objected to... She said that uh, one of the things that hurt her the most was seeing a lot of really talented filmmakers be strung along by the by the studios forever they would they would they would keep them on the string but they really had no intention of making the movie mm-hmm. and mm-hmm. but they wouldn't come out and say so and she found that really hurtful and she had mm-hmm. a wonderful line she said hollywood is the only place where you can die of encouragement right you know right oh god the project that goes on forever, forever. and it will never be mounted yeah. and and uh, then of course these these people stop working on anything else because mm-hmm. they think their film is going to be made and a lot of times it never gets and then the tides change and and yeah yeah well I, I i know that you loved films from day one and were you just passionate about pauline kale's take on the movie she reviewed or were you passionate about film? And Pauline Kael seemed to be the most intelligent critic out there who shared your vision. Yeah, it was. I, I was crazy about the movies from the beginning. I, I just absolutely out of my mind mm-hmm. for the movies. And uh, to the point where my parents would just, I think, want to put a bag around my head sometimes. <laughs> <clears throat> I remember uh, I, there was a launch party out in uh, California for my, my latest book on Sue Mengers. And... Uh, Sidney Poitier and his wife Joanna came to the party, and I was talking to them, and I told them the story about when I saw To Sir With Love, mm-hmm. starring Sidney Poitier when I was a kid. And I just loved it, mm-hmm. and I couldn't stop talking about it, and I couldn't stop thinking about it. And finally, about three days after this nonstop running over the movie again and again and again, my mother said, if you don't shut up about that film, I am never taking you to another one. <laughs> and did the Sydney and Joanna loved that. They thought that was very funny. Uh, but And I think, yeah, Pauline was the voice of criticism of, of film writing that spoke to me. You know, I mm-hmm. felt like she was talking right to me. Yeah. In those reviews, which yeah. was a great, she had a great conversational gift in her writing. And from what I understand, she went to movies only once and would go with her first hit uh, in opinion. I wonder if that's really true, but, you know, I don't care because actually when we all go to the movies, we have that experience, don't we? You well, know? yeah, she, she, I think there were occasions when she went back and looked mm-hmm. at something. But for the most part, I think she did only see things once because she thought, that that was your truest reaction, mm-hmm. that if you saw it again and th- rethought it too much, mm-hmm. she wanted to get that hot reaction down That's on right. paper in the first flush of having seen it. And when, I, when she came to Oregon State, one of the English professors challenged her on this and said something about, well, Miss Kale, it took me three times seeing Bergman's persona before I even thought I had a, a clue mm-hmm. what, what it was about and Pauline said well that's the difference between you and me isn't it <laughs> <laughs> I was like wow <laughs> yes you were right to the heart I love it yeah. oh my god so um do we have film critics like like Pauline Kael these days and the sad part is a lot of young people don't even know who Paul, Pauline Kael is no, and, and thanks to no. your book of course it, it's raised awareness Yeah. Um, but I, I often read Anthony Lane in the New Yorker mm-hmm. and think there 
is the similarity. I mean, he has so much joy He's very in, witty. in poking fun. He's a very yeah. witty writer. Yeah, I, I do enjoy reading his, his work. Uh, I think there are a lot of good film critics. I think David, David Edelstein, who was a protege and friend of Pauline's, mm-hmm. is a very good film writer. I think that um, Owen Gleiberman. Um, from right. Entertainment Weekly, Weekly is, is yeah. a really mm-hmm. terrific critic. I think there, uh, Charles Taylor. I think there are a lot of good good film critics, um, but um, but I think, and I think they've been influenced by her, mm-hmm. many many of them. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. but that was a singular voice, and it will never ever come again. That's I right. Don't think. And it was, a, and she was also in the right place at the right time. That whole revolution in American movie making in the 60s and 70s, she was right there on the front row for that. I will forgive her that she didn't care for Star Wars, but, you know, I'll I'll go on. (laughs) Well, I think she, you know, that's interesting because I think she had a hunch that Star Wars was ultimately going to be detrimental to the to the possibility of the kind of movie she liked being made. And I think she was right. Yeah, Everything had to be a blockbuster. Mm-hmm. Yeah, mm-hmm. Yeah. That's interesting. Yeah. Also, she was a bit anti-Western, and Star Wars is really a big Western. Well, that's my biggest complaint with her, because I love Westerns. And, in fact, the other night I just watched for the 19th time or something my very favorite movie of all time. <clears throat> which is The Searchers. Yeah, I knew it. How did you know? <laughs> it has to be. Know? It's the best movie ever it, made. It is an incredible <laughs> film. Oh, the cinematography, the script, the tension. Um, and she calls it cold, calculating. She missed no, it completely. She, Sorry, she's Pauline. biased. And John <laughs> Wayne, the image of him in the doorway. That is one John of the great Ford performances. John Ford at his best. John Wayne's performance in that of the of the 1950s. I think anyone who accused him of not being able to act should see that movie again. It's wow. a deep, disturbing, very disturbing, very dark. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. And yeah. she says it doesn't work on so many levels, and I find that really interesting. I remember even in my time in London, going to the National Film Theater, and they they would keep The Searchers up as number one film. It, you know, it's mm-hmm. an extraordinary piece of filmmaking and operatic. Um, in Very pace operatic. at times, you know. Very operatic. And, um, and it's right up there with me with Once Upon a Time in the West, Sergio Leone. Oh, yeah. But that, that, yeah. that's for another conversation. <laughs> <laughs> you know, Brian, you're interesting to me because um, I, I just interviewed Betty Buckley. And she's quite a chameleon. And um, you have a wide base of knowledge over several genres in the arts, just as she did. And, and, and you and she have been successful in, in them all. Um, I understand that when you first came to New York, your roommate may have been instrumental in furthering your love for classical music and opera. Oh, yeah. Well, two of them, in fact. Uh, one of them, I'm just uh, traveling up to, to Connecticut, uh, farther up in Connecticut uh-huh. to, to visit this week. Um, I had two roommates. I was very lucky. I got to New York. I didn't know anybody except for my friend Cynthia Peterson. I'd gone to college with her in Oregon. And she had preceded me to New York. And she was working as the performance manager at the Metropolitan Opera. Mm-hmm. And she was living with a, a young guy, a very talented young conductor named Stephen Mercurio. Oh, yes. And uh, – so they needed a third roommate eventually, and I and I came, and which was lucky because I think I had four hundred dollars when I came <laughs> from from Portland, and um, so I got a job right away because jobs were very very plentiful at mm-hmm. the time, mm-hmm. and uh, and I moved in, and Stephen had this great library of scores for operas, and I would um, I would 
Cynthia would say, well, come to the opera anytime you want. And, and I would go night after night after night with friends of mine. And that's how I learned about it, really, by just by going to the Met and seeing it. And if it was something I liked, I would go to maybe every performance, like Joan Sutherland and Lucia de Lammermoor. I went to, I went to eight performances of that in the fall of 1982. And you knew, knew nothing really about opera at that point or, oh, no. or singing? Nothing, nothing. I'd studied piano for nine years, but, but I'd never, I'd, I think I'd, I'd been to the opera once when I was living in Oregon. The Boris Goldovsky Company came yes. Yes. and did Madama Butterfly, and I went to that, and I liked it, mm-hmm. but it didn't lead to an instant addiction or anything. And... Um, uh, and I would see, you know, Martino Arroyo and Judith Blagan show up on The Tonight Show mm-hmm. with Johnny Carson, and I thought they were great, but I, I just didn't have much access to it. And then when I came to New York, it was something that I could do for no money because Cynthia would let me in night after night after night on the orchestra, and I fell in love with it. I mean, the first opera I saw at the Met was De Rosencavalier, opening mm-hmm. night of 1982 with Kiri Takanawa. Tatiana Troianos, Judith Blagan, Kurt Moll, and it was supposed to be Luciano Pavarotti, <clears throat> but he canceled, oh, which, yes. which happened a lot. <laughs> of course, of course. Yeah. Uh, but then I saw him later in the run, so that was What fun. a dream cast. Yeah, yeah. What a yes. dream cast. And my friend Jean Craft, I should mention, my wonderful friend Jean Craft. Fabulous. Yeah. Fabulous. And with Lucia, when you heard Joan Sutherland, I, I, I read that you fell in love with the voice mm-hmm. at a time when the voice was everything right. in, in singing. Do you think in all your writings you've done for Opera News and everything you've seen and everything you share in the operatic world, is that still the case? No. Yeah. No, it's not. I don't think we have a lot of really arresting individual voices right now. I mean, I'm certainly not alone in thinking that. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, why that is the case is a little harder to determine. Now, there are some great ones. Jonas Kaufman. Yes. Michael Fabiano, I think mm-hmm. the most exciting Italian eight tenor in years. Mm-hmm. The, he is astonishing. Mm-hmm. Um, I think Anna Netrebko is a very, very no gifted doubt. No doubt. individual and a star. No question about it. And getting back to the Garrett listener, this young Sean Plum. Sean Michael Plum. He's what fantastic. What yeah. sound. Yeah, it's terrific. He sings from the floor, doesn't it's he? It's a big, gutsy mm-hmm. It's like It's voice. like singing should be. It's a once-in-a-lifetime yeah, voice. Right. I'm, I'm so thrilled to see this. That's right. But I think, I think that uh, the Met, I'll, I'll use as an example because that's the company that I see the most of, mm-hmm. um, I think that they have done their audience a disservice in a way because I think they have promoted a lot of people who do not have that individuality and that level of talent. That's and they, right. they tried to make stars out of them, and I think it can't quite be done. Yeah, and it's become you know? a physical thing, isn't it, with the age of DVD? And, um, oh, yeah. And like Pauline Kale, you were the man prodding Peter Gelb <laughs> in your write-ups, much to Mr. Gelb's disdain. Yes, he was not very happy about that. <laughs> I didn't. I certainly didn't mean it personally, but I was, I was talking about what I felt was the disappointment of the audience, and then it kind of blew up. And Only that, for 24 hours. But so. that was echoed by many. Oh, yeah. And you had such yeah. support. Yeah. 
Um, I hate it just now that I'm getting the one-minute marker here, and we don't that have any quick. more time. That was so <laughs> quick. You're going to go off now to Oregon to spend the summer to finish your novel, I am Up on my first Blaine, novel, which Up is so Blaine. exciting. Yeah, it's in Tillamook County. And your b- book about Sue Mengers, the, mm-hmm. the hot Hollywood agent of the 70s, wow. Every, yeah. Everybody needs to go out and buy that. Thanks. And, Thank you. Um, and this is where I have to say... Brian Kello, thank you for being so insightful and fun. Oh, thank and, you. And, and just a, a voice for the now. And so to echo uh, Sue Mengers, uh, can I say, can I go now? Can we go now? <laughs> it's lunchtime. <laughs> thank you, Brian Kello. This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is down on center stage. Yeah.